to the Data Skeptic bonus feed, where we release extended content on data science, statistics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. Today on Data Skeptic, we're featuring an interview with Jill Darling, Survey Director for the Understanding America Study in USC's Center for Economic and Social Research, CSER. This interview was featured in a recent episode of Data Skeptic titled Opinion Polls for Presidential Elections. We found Jill's insight so informative that we wanted to release this segment in its entirety. Thanks to Christine Zhang for conducting the interview. Our poll was very different in a lot of different ways. It was an experimental poll. It had been piloted briefly in 2008 and then again for a whole pre-election season in 2012. But this was its basically its second outing in a full election season. And the reason that we call it experimental and consider it experimental is because it really does use techniques that are different than the sort of tried and true polling that everyone has been doing forever, which is often telephone based. If it's done right, it's maybe RDD, in other words, random samples of telephone numbers. Interviewers call to reach people on the phone and screen them for whether or not they're a registered voter, and then also ask some screening questions about whether or not they are going to be likely to vote in the upcoming election. And then ask a normal categorical question of, if the election were held today, would you vote for candidate A, candidate B? And then generally, if people are unsure, they might be leaned. Or today, are you leaning more towards candidate A, candidate B? So that's the traditional way of doing polling. Try and find out who's a likely voter. You ask them who they're voting for, and you publish the results among either all registered voters, if it's too early to really do a good job of finding likely voters, or among likely voters when it gets closer to the election. So that's kind of the gold standard it has been. There's a lot of other ways that people do polling, including using registered voter samples, which are prone to having some problems in them. There might be over or under reporting of people who are in them. Is this the voter uh, file that you're talking voter about? Voter file. Okay. Yeah. A lot of political operatives in the campaigns use these voter files because it allows them to really categorize people into people who vote all the time, people who vote only in presidential elections, etc. There's a lot of different things you can do. Nationally, it's a little more problematic because not all states keep all of that. So anyway, these are the things that have been part of traditional polling. More recently, there are online polls, some with panels like GFKs, which started out as a big probability panel. It is still huge. It's a huge panel. Not so much as a probability anymore as, as it was. And then there are, you know, like SurveyMonkey polls that are among people who take SurveyMonkey polls. And they're very large. And a lot of the researchers who use these kind of scraping polls like that one is, you know, try to weight them to be representative of the voter electorate. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Really, the RDD, the random digit dialing is still the gold standard for a traditional poll or being done through a panel such as ours, where you have the ability to say that you have a probability sample. We know the probability that any person was selected to be in our sample, which allows us to use the statistics that we use to do the estimate. So for ours, where we depart from that, we have the gold standard sample. And then we have a different way of going about asking the questions. We use what's called a probability method, which means that we ask people to, rather than the categorical, if 
the election were held today, who would you vote for? We asked them to tell us the likelihood that they're going to vote in November. So that's a zero to 100% likelihood that they're going to vote. And then we asked them to tell us on a also zero to 100% scale, their likelihood of voting for that candidate. So there's a zero to 100% likelihood of voting for Trump, Clinton, someone else. Rather than having a likely voter screen, we used the information that people give us about their own likelihood of voting, their prediction of their likelihood of voting. And we multiply that by their their percentage vote for the candidate. And that gives us an unconditioned probability of voting. And we use that to cast our forecast estimate of the percentage vote. The real difference that you get from this Rather than having just a, for example, if someone's a Trump voter, in a categorical traditional question, they're either going to be a Trump voter or a Trump leaner. In our way of doing this, they might be a 60% Trump voter, a 75% Trump voter, a 100% Trump voter, but they're going to be perhaps changing over time from a 60% Trump voter to a 100% Trump voter if something happens. You know, they attended a rally and they're all fired up now and they've gone from sort of tepid or not really sure to really thinking this is their guy. And if enough of those accumulate, you will see those changes in our estimates. I don't know, sort of maybe like a fever chart or something over time. We have a, in that way, kind of a way of quantifying the level of certainty, maybe quantifying uncertainty, particularly important, I think, during early days of a campaign when people are still getting to know the candidates, they're still making up their minds. And so that's one really significant difference, actually two, because of our panel as well. Oh, right. Because you asked like a a same panel of people. What we did was we recruited from our 6,000 member panel. It wasn't 6,000 when we started, but we built it. We were actually building the size of the panel over that summer. This is the Understanding America study? It's the Understanding America study at the Center for Economic and Social Research at USC. Our panel was not created to do this survey. It's a panel that we use to do academic, policy, government, nonprofit, you know, and also private surveys for all of these various reasons, generally soft money, grant money funded surveys. So that's what generally goes on. And since we're the Center for Economic and Social Research, a lot of our research is on economics, financial understanding and health. This was a sort of an opportunity for our panel members to not only participate in some of those somewhat more, if you'll forgive me, dry subjects, <laughs> yeah. to volunteer, the ones who are citizens, to volunteer to be in our election panel. So we recruited as many of those folks as we could. We got more than 4,000 people who said they would participate every week. That group of people were assigned randomly to a day of the week. So they knew they were going to participate, for example, on Tuesday, every week of the run-up to the election from July through November. We would send them the invitation and they would log in any time of day or night at their convenience. They knew it was going to happen every week. So, you know, we had really good participation. They would answer just those simple questions, plus one more, which was, what percent likelihood do you think these candidates will win? We were interested to see 
if that might be somewhat more predictive or give us more information if they were predicting the chances of the candidate to win. Was that a question that was asked in other polls? Well, well, we had that as part of the sample in 2012. And when I say we, I wasn't with the team that I'm here at, at CSER, the Center for Economic and Social Research. I, can, I joined last year. But this team conducted that 2012 poll together when they were at RAND. The way that we did it this time, including those three questions, were exactly the way that they did that at RAND in 2012. When it was extremely close, I think it really was the very the closest in the final estimate of all the polls there are. The sort of published accounts of it, 538.com, had, I think the last one they took was three days out or something. But when you look at the very last one, they were very close. So we had a lot of confidence in you know this method. It had performed very well under pressure. It was criticized at the time for being Obama-centric to being to Obama, but it turned out that Obama did win and they were vindicated at the time. This time, um, for the 2016 election, you know, we, we did the same process. We asked the people um, to participate every day, and then we posted on our chart the previous seven days. So if you think about how we distributed our sample over the seven days of the week, if you look back any seven days... Um, over the previous seven days, you're going to have, you know, a rolling sample, basically. What that means is that we have a very slow unfolding of information over time. So if there's a fixed event, for example, a you know, one of the conventions, Democratic National Convention or Republicans, or if there's something that happens that's newsworthy that may change uh, people's feelings about it, you're going to see that reflected in our numbers slowly because, Obviously, looking back seven days, right? The first day after the event, you have six days before the event. Three days in, when everybody else's polls come out, the, the faster telephone polls, you'll see their reaction immediately. And you, for ours, we'll have three days of post-event and four days of pre-event. We often caught a lot of flack based on that issue that people would be like, oh, you know, there's this huge surge for Clinton. People are coming out with six or 14 point Clinton leads and we're, you know, trailing along with Clinton coming up slowly, uh, but maybe Trump's still ahead. We did catch a lot of flack for partially that reason. And also we did put all of our data and our methods online. So we had researchers and analysts following along in real time with us and the estimates we were creating and our, our forecasting, including Nate Silver's group, who decided they were going to just basically put a plus four or plus six, I can't remember which now. Clinton on top of it, all of our estimates, because um, they agreed with our weighting. We had folks at the Washington Post and the New York Times who were also doing analysis and a couple of other folks who were as well. Did you, were you in contact with them when, when they were doing this at all? You know, the, the reporters would contact us when they were about to run a story you know, just sort of get our feedback or, you know, check to make sure that what they were saying was something that we would agree with. We did hear from them to time to time, from time to time. And we, of course, followed what they were doing in the news because we just had a lot of input from a lot of people and people sending us, you know, whatever was happening. And once we really became cognizant of like what really was happening on Twitter, we followed it there. So, you know, we were aware but we weren't in touch. You said that you had recruited this panel of people from the larger Understanding America study. Did you offer them any incentives to participate? Yes. And what was what was that so like? They, 
we pay them, you know, basically for their time in doing the surveys. They're giving us a lot of information and, and we pay them not a, a large amount. It ends up being, you know, like for a 10 minute survey, they get $7. It's not a ton. But for this one, they were paid $2 a week. That was their incentive. We also had some other surveys that we did while we were going along. Um, we did a survey around the conventions. We did another survey uh, sort of in the middle looking at some issues of immigration and trade. Okay. And for those, they paid according to the length of time that that survey took. But they had a, just sort of a regular $2 a week from participation in the one main argument that I've read about your poll was that it waited for how people said they voted in 2012. Yeah. I remember the the main thing being that there was a thought that people would lie about the way that they had voted or had or would remember themselves as having or say that they had voted for the winning candidate. Here's the thing. It's either that they're lying or they don't remember the, you know, those, so that would be measurement error. Or when we go back to sample people, people who don't participate in elections may be less likely, likely to participate in election surveys. So there's two schools of thought and they require two entirely different approaches. If it's a sampling problem, in other words, we don't have those people in our sample. That means there's a coverage error. And what you do with coverage errors like that is you, apply weights that compensate for that. So we make sure that we weight all of our samples to account for any biases for education, age, all of the typical things that everyone does in surveys. If you come down on the side of it being sample error, you would also need to apply that weight to account for the fact that we don't have those folks in our sample. There's not a lot of evidence, but there's some literature to show that people do differentially respond based on number one, interest, and number two, sort of sensitivity or, or, you know, like issues with the subject. And in particular around elections, you know, if there's an event that happens, you're going to have differential response based on whether that event was positive or negative for your candidate. If it was negative for your candidate, people are less likely to respond to a survey about the event. With those things in mind, we sort of came down on the side of sample error as opposed to the other side which is where everyone else basically came down on, which is that it's measurement error, that people are either lying or they're misremembering, or there's just sort of a psychological tendency to remember, you know, like if you really like Obama now, you're more likely to remember that you voted for Obama. We don't really have a ton of evidence about this. We do know that there is drift. We don't really know why that drift occurs. So we need more research on that. And that's definitely going to be a huge focus for us in subsequent elections that we do. But for the moment, you know, our statistician, who's an econometrician and professor at USC, looked at the available evidence and realized that, you know, if we came down on the side of sampling error, it would not only deal with the potential for differential non-response to the survey, but also differential non-response to any particular week when you might have this issue come up where there's an event that's negative for the candidate. And so therefore we might have some differential non-response among our panelists who had agreed to participate, that it would also account for that as well. Because 
We had to stretch Republicans who voted for Romney in the past because we had an overrepresentation of Obama voters and an underrepresentation of non-voters. We stretched the Republicans and we stretched the non-voters. And those two things combined, because more 2012 non-voters tended towards Trump, they stretched the Trump numbers. And if you didn't do that, you got numbers that look a lot like the numbers that everybody else was getting at the time which all were had Clinton ahead the entire time. So in the end, we really wondered, because we had this overstatement of the popular vote for Trump, you know, was that really the problem? And we are finishing up our analysis of this now. But what we really have found is that, no, that was not the problem. The problem was that we had an overstatement of urban voters. We had a bias towards urban voters that we were not aware of. I mean, not urban, I'm sorry, uh, rural. That ended up really being it. And what we're looking at now is a variety of models that we, you know, we're applying. And it really looks like what we're going to be doing is adjusting based on zip code population, which should take care of the issue for us. It's not a typical weighting variable. There hadn't been anything previously to tip us off to this bias in our election sample. So, I mean, it's it's really sort of interesting that we had that rural overstatement. We're looking into where it came from, what its sources are. The bottom line is once you make that adjustment, you end up with a one-point Clinton lead or a two-point Clinton lead, depending on which model you use. One model adjusts based on census designation of whether or not it's urban or rural, and the other one is just based on population and zip code. You know, what we're going to do is once, you know, our statistician is satisfied with the models, we'll need to run that against, we have the 2012 data that we can look at. Hopefully we can run a comparable model that we have for our casting estimate against that data and make sure that it's still working. We now have two election samples to work with. So that's what our statistician is working on. He'll publish that data later this year. Great. And this is Ari... Yeah, Ari Kaptein, he's the executive director of the Center for Economic and Social Research. And our statistician is econometrician Eric Meyer. And he's the one who makes the statistical methodological decisions. And you're the one that carries it out as the as the survey director for Understanding America. Right. So we have, you know, Ari is also um, an economist and, a, and an excellent analyst and statistician on his own right. And we have another statistician who works with us. We, we Our executive director, Tanya Gooch, is also part of the team. So as a team, we review these decisions and basically the, the Eric has final call on the decisions that are made. So the ones that we did that were controversial were that 2012 and the other was that uh, he did not trim the weights and not trimming the weights gives you the ability to actually get the estimates lined up along all of the population estimates that we weighed against. So it allows you to make sure that you have, you know, no bias in any of those estimates. But what it does mean is that you can have subgroups that have really large weights for sort of the unicorns in the sample who are standing in for a lot of people. Mm, Um, Yeah. And so that is a controversial weighting decision that we will also review and look at what happens if you don't do that. And you know, what the impact on uh, our final estimates are, and also on the error that we also take into account. No one else takes it into account, but we look at the at the error that we have to think about in terms of the confidence intervals 
for our forecasts and the impact that it has on those is part of what his concern was. These are all things we are reviewing, he is reviewing, and like I say, we'll publish, he and Ari will we'll publish about later in the year. So Yeah, that'll be interesting to see for sure. Um, an issue in general with sampling, right? Because if you have the, these intersections of all these demographics, race, gender, age, et cetera, then you probably, like the more intersections you add, the fewer people you have that can be representative. You know, if you trim the weights, you do keep any individual weight down. And there's a big argument for that. I mean, looking at it from the point of view of non-statistical, but just looking at population, do you want one guy to stand in for 50 people? That's the question. Generally speaking, survey researchers say, no, you don't. And they keep those weights trimmed. But then what you do end up with is that your sample may be really short on young, you know, black people who are Republicans or something along those lines, where you have some intersections that you are not necessarily waiting on that cell, but it's the result of the weights that are twisting these cells. You know, we, we try and keep the categories as large as possible. So the cell you know, number of cells to be as small as possible. One of the really the main thing that we have to think about for next year is these statistical issues are important, but when it comes down to it, they are choices that you make based on the trade-offs. But I think that where we really fell down was in not really thinking through how to communicate the results that we were getting. If you make a decision, for example, to not trim your weight, so you're, you may have these very large weights in subgroups, then maybe what the trade-off for that is that you don't publish subgroup numbers. That's something that we're going to have to think about. If what we're aiming at is only really getting our overall estimate right, then putting out subgroup numbers may be problematic, right? Yeah, because the subgroup is is made up of, say, like one one 19-year-old Illinois man who votes for Trump, <laughs> according to Nate Cohn, anyway. Which I have to say, that was a moment he seized. I can't blame him for seizing the moment. It was really distressing for us that he identified that person as much as he did. We have a data use agreement that precludes anybody using our data to identify someone my biggest concern was that that might happen or that he might recognize himself. We really were very concerned about that. We talked to our IRB, our, our research review board, to think through the ethical implications and, and think about, you know, if we needed to do anything. But, you know, there, there hadn't really been any technical infringements. It was just unfortunate that he chose to do that, even though we asked him not to. Not to what? Not to identify the panelists? as a- Not to give so many identifiers. He didn't need to say as many identifiers as he did at once. <laughs> we also objected to his misrepresentation of the impact of that because the whole point of those weights is to make sure that our overall estimates were being uh, fairly cast, unbiased cast, and they were not moving the aggregates that people were doing, like Nate Silver's aggregates or whatever, the polling aggregates. It was not moving those. Oh, I see. Well, if I'm understanding this correctly because polling and forecasting is complicated, so I may be wrong, but you have polls, individual polls, and then you have polling averages. Right. Right, which is, to be fair to Nate Cohn, what he was talking about, I think. Yes. And then you have forecast models based on those polling averages. So 
if the USCLA Times poll was a big polling outlier, it would be distorting, not distorting, but it would be having an effect on the national polling average, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. But that's not the fault of our one 19-year-old guy with the large weight. The reason that we were as much of an outlier as we were, there's two things. One is that we did detect many more sort of movements around and for Trump among people that I really truly believe were not in traditional polls. And we saw those aggregate movements, like I was describing earlier, in the way that people consolidated support for Trump or moved away in relation to events that I think were not necessarily caught. Also remember in traditional polls, research organizations do these polls every now and then. They do one now and then they do one three weeks from now or a month from now. And then you look at those numbers, you know, in the media that move from, you know, a month ago to now, whereas we're looking at in ours, we were looking at daily changes over time. We just sort of detected a lot more sort of movement up and down than you would detect in doing it on a, on larger um, interval increments. So, you know, there was a lot of comparisons of apples and oranges, I think, there. What, what we really detected and what I'm in the middle of analyzing right now is like, how much can we say from what we know in our panel, where we had the same people over time, how much can we say about what we could see about differential non-response? I mean, those are really the really interesting things here because those are would be affecting everybody's poll. They may have been working on differential non-response that was suppressing Clinton voter participation. They may have been working on a in a situation where people were less than comfortable saying that they were voting for Trump. You know, there could be uh, many of these factors depending on the type of poll and the organization that was conducting it and the sampling methods and, you know, all of those things. Yeah. And when you say like you think that the USCLA Times poll really captured a lot of people who weren't previously in polls, are you speaking to the rural voters that you mentioned earlier um, or other types of people? We had two groups, I think, that fall into that category. One is that we did have the 2012 non-voters entirely represented in our poll. They told us what their likelihood of voting was in this election, and their overall, that group's average likelihood of voting was much lower than the people, of course, who voted in 2012, but it wasn't zero. It was more like 50% on aggregate. So we had that group of people who was participating. And then we had all, we have also rural voters and people who are able to participate in our surveys sort of at their own convenience. We give people who don't have internet connectivity and people who do not have computers, we provide them with an internet connected tablet to use to take our surveys. They can also use them for their own purposes, but the trade-off is that they agree to go ahead and take our surveys. So that way we make sure that we have coverage of groups of people who are hard to reach and also never going to show up in anybody else's internet poll. And that group really are lower socioeconomic status. They're more rural. They were voters that are more likely to be disabled or continue to be unemployed after the downturn and that kind of thing. So these are folks who are some of the categories that you see in those swing voters from Obama to Trump who are looking for somebody to help. And so all of that analysis, we're we're in the middle of finishing up right now and and we'll be uh, presenting that information and publishing it as we go along this year as well. During the election cycle, Ernie Tedeschi, who used to be the, an analyst at the U.S. Treasury, he posted on his website um, a reweighting of the L.A. Times poll. And 
I think the one that he took out was the 2012 vote from the target dimension. Yeah. And there were a lot of things, but I think that was the main change. He also waited, I think he waited by state. Our statistician took, you know, what he did and replicated it for us to make sure that we could that we saw what it was and that we believed it too. So he did both Ernie Tedeschi's and he did Nate Cohn's waiting. He took their both of their approaches and, you know, reweighted our data to take a look at it, you know, to see if he could replicate it in the same way. So we saw what they were doing and we're looking at the impacts of these. And what was what's, you know, really interesting about a lot of this is, you know, each one of these analysts has a model based on their favorite way of doing this and their own sense of what the most accurate way of going about creating these models for estimation are. And in each case, you get a different result. Their results by taking out the 2012 voting were much more Clinton. You know, what we saw is that when we were taking that out and also adjusting for urbanicity, you end up with a big overstatement for Clinton that just doesn't compute. We saw what they were doing. We were following along. But do you still believe that rural overstatement was was the main issue rather than the... Um... That's what we're seeing. Yes, that's what we're seeing in, the, in our post-election analysis of this data, that when you adjust for the rurality overstatement, leaving the 2012 vote intact as we have it, we have a one or two point Clinton win. Oh, I see. And that's better, quote unquote, better, I guess, than doing it either Ernie or Nate's way. I don't know, because if you did it Ernie or Nate's way and you adjusted our data for urbanicity, you end up with a large overstatement. So if you do not adjust for urbanicity and you just take the 2012 vote out, it looks good, but you still have that rural bias in the data. And that rural bias is going to bias other things as well. You can't have these, you know, this bias just sitting there and say, oh, well, here, superficially, we've corrected for it by taking out the 2012 non-voters. Uh-huh. I see. You still have that underlying issue there. Do people just generally not adjust for urban rural? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to do it. You need to get people's zip codes. You need to know the underlying sample and its zip codes. Um, you don't have that in a telephone poll. In other words, there's a lot of information that's sort of missing to be able to do that in uh, a telephone poll. But because we have a sample that we know pretty much everything about, we know the zip code of the home. We don't publish that data, but it's part of our underlying information because that's how we select our sample is by households in the United States. It's a random sample of households from zip codes across the United States. We know their zip code and we can then use other data that is available by zip code and, you know, by other means of identification, geocoding and and other things to, to identify areas. So we have that information and that's a lovely thing that a lot of people, it's sort of a luxury that a lot of pollsters don't have. So it's not easy to wait. You would have to do it sort of more in a in an overall categorical manner where you would look at it and ask everybody their zip code, figure out whether, you know, what you had in terms of rural, urban, what suburban, and then weight that on a national level and just those like four categories to make that adjustment. And I, I don't know which uh, units do that and don't. There may be some that do. There may, they may not find it necessary if you compare their telephone samples. It may be an artifact of our uh, internet sample. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, it is. Do you know when it'll be out um, this year? 
I've got two presentations at the upcoming American Association for Public Opinion Research conference. Ari and I are, are going to be presenting at the European Survey Research Association. So we're going to be presenting basically preliminary results from this analysis that don't have to wait for formal publication for people to be able to cite it but that we can communicate to our fellow survey researchers for their own you know, thinking and, and that they can come in and work with us and collaborate and think about how to move uh, forward. Because that was really one of our main aims here is to think about whether or not this method that we're using and the, the methods that we're using, which include all of these pieces that we've been talking about, if they are a useful contribution to creating more accurate forecasts of elections, because I, don't, I really don't think that the desire to forecast elections is ever going to go away. It's a human, human need. Thinking about how to, how to more accurately model pre-election sentiment, and I think that getting away from the idea that every estimate at every point in time is the forecast for what's actually going to happen in November is one of the main things that if we can change that narrative, because, I mean, it just doesn't even make sense. You're looking at it, you know, two months out. We have no idea, depending on, you know, what happens between now and, and two months from now, how voter sentiment is going to change. And there are so many things that can affect it. So to say that, you know, you can look at, at data two months out and give a forecast for what's going to happen in November. You can talk about where voters are at this given point in time. Focusing on that rather than these horse races, I, I sort of doubt there's any way to take the drama down a notch because that's what everybody relies on. The media relies on it to sell commercials and to sell subscriptions and newspapers and all of the things that the media requires to be able to exist. And so there, you know, there really isn't any incentive to really look at this in a less um, dramatic way. But what we can do is we can think about how to maybe really try and do a better job of modeling how people are feeling and, and what they're doing, rather than the very simple kinds of things that we've been doing all along. Our center actually has been looking into the idea of really putting together a multidisciplinary way of looking at what democracy looks like in America now, how people, uh, you know, what people's attitudes are about democracy and, and elections and, and civic life, what it means to be in America now. And I think that a, a lot of those things used to be taken for granted as sort of the underlying structure for how elections are run and how they take place and, and how people react to them. And I think that a lot of that underlying structure was really called into question this year. People really are. Survey researchers are really thinking hard about this and, and other, uh, you know, people who are working in the in related fields of political science and sociology and, and uh, communications are all thinking about these issues. So, I think you should get a lot of credit for making the microdata and everything available um, beforehand. I mean, it's good that nothing, like nothing happened with the as part of the Nate Cohn article, right? Like he didn't recognize himself. Nothing, nothing did happen about that. We were sort of ready and prepared to think about what we needed to do as a result of that, but nothing did happen. And the, I think that what we will do probably next time is to set up something. And I, I really don't know what it is, so I don't even want to speculate yet, but making the data available to other researchers is very valuable. It is uncomfortable. So the next time you would still do the same thing? Oh, sure. 
we may want to do it as some kind of a some under some kind of an agreement that makes it much clearer what is okay to do with the data and what is not um, our data. We do have everyone, of course, sign a data use agreement that says that they will not reveal people's identification. They will not try to re-identify people. In other words, we have a general standard data use agreement that you have when you're releasing data that is not identifiable. We'll think about strengthening that. We may think about perhaps partnering with some analysts where we would have maybe some representatives from a variety of, of other organizations, media, policy, who knows? I mean, we can think about, you know, these are some ideas that we would be able to have this data out there and have it be released. But there's also, you know, a concern about misuse of data in this sort of era of playing fast and loose with analysis and with facts. (laughs) You know, our data was quite misrepresented by certain organizations. And we just assumed that you know, people who consume information from those organizations uh, were doing so at their own risk. We had our own releases of data. We had our own media partners. And in general, uh, the media treated the data carefully and fairly with, you know, some minor exceptions. But there were some real misuses of it. So all of these things are, are things that we'll be thinking about with our communication. But on the other hand, there was misrepresentation about how it- there was a confusion, I would say, or conflation between the the actual election outcome and which candidate was ahead in your poll yeah. afterwards. There, yeah, so. before it, we were, you know, we were completely pilloried as being the outlier. Yeah. Wrong, and that was not right either. And then we were completely pilloried, I mean, completely celebrated afterwards as being the only poll that got it right. <laughs> and that wasn't true either. The, the Right. So I'm just saying. It's crazy. Yeah. The whole thing's great. You're, yeah, if you want to complain about one, you should complain about the other two. The, the important thing is to get the story right. Yes, so. I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, throughout all of the, the interviews that Ari and I did after the election, we kept making the point. All the other polls were not wrong, number one. Number two, we did not get it right. We were measuring the popular vote and we had Trump ahead. And while we feel that you know, a lot of the things that we measured were valid and strong. We did not nail the outcome, which, you know, anybody who's trying to forecast an election, you have an actual outcome and you want to nail it. The election forecast, which is like the who, who would you vote for question, had really different results, almost the opposite as the predicted winner question, which was who do you believe will win? Yeah. Why was there such a big divergence? Like, the, so the predicted winner, people said that they thought that Clinton would win, but then people said that they thought that they would vote for Trump. Like, what's going on there, in your opinion? Well, remember, you know, everyone, the whole narrative in the country was that Clinton was going to win. And it was the only real burning question was by how much. So if the entire narrative in the media you know, and everything else that's going on in the country is that Clinton's going to win. The voters have that also. They're affected by that as much as the pundits and the pollsters are, you know, all affected by this this ongoing narrative. You know, we had we had people saying that there's no way that Trump could ever win. And then when Trump became the candidate, the Republican candidate, you know, there was a lot of, well, he can't win a general election. You know, it's like, Uh, there was just this ongoing narrative. So of course, people absorb that. But consistently and by beyond the area of uncertainty. Yeah, right. Beyond. Right. Yeah. Because honestly, that's what you're told every day. 
in every way. <laughs> That's what we were all told every day. We really started thinking about this. You know, we, we had some thoughts. There had been some previous research indicating that people's idea about who was going to win might be at least sort of a glance into something that might be more accurate. But I really do think that particularly because now the modern world of elections is so saturated with this information in a way that it didn't really used to be. You used to have periodic interest in poll related information. Now with tracking polls and forecasts that are going on and all of the things where there's information every day and you have Twitter and you have 24-hour news cycles and you have polarized media who are playing these up uh, to their bases, I think that that measure may be less useful. But it's an interesting measure still. Well, in hindsight, would you post, would you present the graphics the same way that you? Well, no, I really think that we're going to want to, we're going to want to think about how, like, what's a good way to really present the data that we're collecting? Is it, is it the best way to have a seven day look back rolling average? Is that the best way? Are we going to do subgroups? You know, I mean, all of these things we can now really think through. I think that this was once again, let's just see if it works this time. <laughs> it worked in 2012. Let's see if it works this time. We really were a little naive about the level of attention it would receive. It didn't get that much attention in 2012. So, you know, we, we were a bit naive about that. And then this time we'll really, you know, get some input from people who can help us think about the best way to communicate the information and you know, be a little more professional about it, I think, rather than being kind of like a, a little academic backwater that we thought we were. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for talking to me. 